Well, good evening. Tonight we're going to continue our series entitled Singing Through the Psalms as we look at Psalm 51. Last week we looked at Psalm 101, which was a king's determination to rule righteously. Now we look at Psalm 51, which is a king's restoration to sing of God's righteousness. Last week, we briefly looked at the life of David leading up to the point of when he took the throne. And we saw the abuses and confusions of Saul's last troubled years. And those abuses had to be reformed. And so, as a new king, in the prime of his life, at the age of 30, David felt compelled to declare that he will strive to make his monarchy a copy of God's. In so doing, David said, I will nine times, as he made a strong vow to live according to the law and strictly enforce God's law in his kingdom. But as we know from studying Romans 7, that's an impossible task for anyone attempting to do so through self-effort. Soon after David, just like Saul, uh, excuse me, just like Paul, in Romans 7, failed. Because while he yields to the Lord and he wants to do God's will, he was sincere in his desire. But who is he relying to do it? He was relying on himself. Remember, he said, I will. And when you rely on yourself, let me tell you, dear friend, you're going to fail every time. And that's where we're going to pick up uh, the story today in the life of David. But I do want to say, praise God, that spiritual failure, because we're going to look at it today in the life of David. Praise God that spiritual failure oftentimes leads, leads us through to the back door of success with God. So Psalm 51 is a penitential individual lament psalm. David confessed the sins that he committed against Bathsheba and Uriah. It's really a model of confession that has become a popular psalm amongst God's people. Since we all sin and we all need to confess, this psalm is a help and a comfort to us, especially when we feel guilty over our sin. In it, David did not utter one word of excuse for the sins he had committed, nor did he seek to tone down the gravity of his offenses. He didn't try to blame others for what he had done. David simply expresses a deep inner grief over his sin. Psalm 51 says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now the title of this psalm gives the tragic context for David's plea and explains in the situation out of which this psalm arose. David had sinned in adultery and murder and was lying with unconfessed sin in his life. And it took the bold confrontation of the prophet Nathan to shake him from this. Convicted by the word of the Lord, David came in great honesty and brokenness before God. Now, before we go further in Psalm 51, I want us to turn over, if you would please, to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's refresh our memories with this account so that we can have the context in the forefront of our thinking as we go through Psalm 51 tonight. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And actually, it's, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, let's turn back one more page and go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We won't go through the whole psalm, or excuse me, psalm chapter. Uh, but I do want to just recap kind of what led to uh, the prophet Nathan confronting David. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, It happened in the spring of the year at the time when the kings go out to battle. Now skip down a little bit further there, but David remained at Jerusalem. So already, verse 1 of chapter 11, we're seeing David starting off on the wrong foot. He should have been in battle with his troops, but he remained in Jerusalem. Verse 2, then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. 
and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not, Beth, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her iniquity, uh, impurity, and she returned to her house. Verse 5, and the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. So now you, you got to know David is in full damage control now. What am I going to do? You know, what he thought was a secret sin is, is now going to be known in public when Uriah arrives home and finds his wife pregnant. So what did he do? He conspired. He asked Joab to send Uriah, you know, back home to Jerusalem. Uriah got back home in verse 8, and David told him, hey, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah departed with a gift of food. But Uriah was a man of integrity. Look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David this, David inquired and asked Uriah, verse 11, and said, you know, why didn't you go, or excuse me, verse 10, why did you not go down to your house? In verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? In other words, hey, they're still at war. You know, why should I go and enjoy R&R? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So you got to know at this point, David is sweating bullets. And David said, okay, well, stay here today and then tomorrow you can depart. So we skip down a little bit further, and it goes on to say that David, you know, wrote a note that Uriah hand-carried to Joab, and notice what it said in the letter, in verse 15, and he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. And as we know, that's exactly what happened. We get down to verse 26, and when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And David's probably thinking at this point, hey, I got away with it. But notice the end of the verse. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God sees all things. Now we pick it up in chapter 12. We're going to read down to verse 15 here. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I have delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you in the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword 
shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. So we see that the prophet Nathan here, he used a parable of a little ewe lamb. And this parable really struck a nerve with David. Remember, we talked about last week, David was first mentioned as a shepherd. And as we'll see later on in this passage of the scripture, this is a constant theme representing David's character throughout the Bible. So as soon as he heard this, this struck a nerve. And he became angry at the rich man. And Nathan said, you are the man. Now that we've got the context, let's continue reading Psalm 51. It says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. David appealed to God. He appealed to Elohim to cleanse him because of his faithfulness and compassion. This is the first of David's psalms in which he addresses the Lord as Elohim and not Yahweh possibly reflecting the distance he felt from God as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping strong one. He knew he did not deserve God's forgiveness, nor could he earn it. Elohim means the eternal, all-powerful, all-wise, transcendent, sovereign, relational God. Elohim also reveals the eternal plurality of the Godhead. Notice that David does not try to balance his evil deeds with his good deeds on the scales of justice. You know, that oh, yeah, but look at all the good I've done. I slayed Goliath. I've done this. He wasn't resting on that. For he knew his good works could never atone for his offenses. Rather, David prays to God for his infinite mercy and depends upon that alone for pardon and peace. He says, have mercy on me, O God. This is a prayer of a man who knows he has sinned and has stopped all self-justification. He's not trying to make excuses here. Remember, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In verse 13 of chapter 12 that we just read, it was a good and direct confession without excuse. And it was with clarity. David asked for mercy and that according to the measure of God's loving kindness, This is God's chesed, his loyal love, his covenant mercy. It was a well-phrased request with the eloquence of true brokenness. Divine pardon comes to sinners by his grace alone. David asked God to blot out the record of his transgressions or his wrongdoings, his rebellious acts that go beyond the limits that God has established for conduct. And in verse 1, notice the parallelism here, as well as really throughout the Psalms. Hebrew poetry is filled with parallelism. It is a common literary feature of Hebrew poetry in which the words of two or more lines of text are directly related in some way. It's important to observe parallelism in uh, Hebrew poetry because failure to do so can result in erroneous interpretation. For example, one might conclude that the writer is making an important distinction when really all he's doing is restating the same idea in different words. In the case of synonymous parallelism, in which the writer repeats the thoughts of the first line and the following line. You know, I left that uh, question on your worksheet so that you would write down parallelism because as we progress forward in our study through the Psalms, We're going to look at that a little bit deeper and in more detail. 
because if you understand, you know, Hebrew parallelism, it is going to provide so much more insight, and it'll make your Bible study so much more deeper as you read and study books like Psalms or Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, or Psalm of Solomon. But moving forward here in, in uh, Psalm 51, you know, according to your multitude of your tender mercies, again, in slightly different words here, David has repeated the thought of the previous appeal he had before experienced the multitude of God's tender mercies. He asked for this outpouring again. It's easy to focus on the multitude of our sins. We do that a lot. But notice what comfort there is here in that God hath a multitude of mercies. It has been said that if our sins be the number of hairs on our head, which mine aren't many, then God's mercies are as the stars of the heaven. David used several words to speak of the kindness he desired from God. Mercy denotes God's loving assistance to the pitiful. Loving kindness or unfailing love points to the continuing operation of this mercy. Tender mercies or compassion teaches that God feels for our infirmities. He goes on to say, and blot out my transgressions. David felt a register for his many sins condemned him, and he wanted to account to them, he wanted the account of them to be erased. So he had the plea, blot out, it means wipe out, like writing from a book, you know, erase it completely. When you think of God's accounting or our debt book, all of the black lines of our sins have been blotted out with the red lines of Christ's blood. Christ's blood has canceled the bond completely. Verse 2 says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The Bible writer often compared a person's deeds to the clothing he wears because that's what other people see when they look at us, you know, outward appearance. We think of Samuel as we learned last week, or Nathan, excuse me, as we learned last week in Samuel, that he was looking at the outward appearance of Jesse's sons. God looks at the heart. But people are prone to look on the outward appearance, and David asked God to wash away his iniquity, his guilt, his perverse and twisted moral evil, like dirt that was on his garment. It was stained, and he pleaded for God to wash it away. Cleansing is a term that comes from the tabernacle ritual. Those who came into God's presence to worship and serve him had to be clean. David correctly viewed his sin. In other words, falling short of the standard that God requires as making the worship and service of a holy God impossible. It's impossible to come to God's presence and to worship and serve him if we are not clean. Because, because God is holy. He was morally pure and perfect. In Jewish society that day, to wash and change clothes marked a new beginning in your life. And David made such a new start. A few verses later, in the passage we just read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, it says, Then David arose from the earth, this is after his son died, and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him and he did eat. So you see a new start in David's life. Nathan had assured David upon his first profession of repentance that his sin was pardoned. God had forgiven him, but he could not forgive himself, and therefore he is thus persistent in his desire for pardon. Many a murderer is more alarmed at the gallows than the murder which brought him to it. The thief loves to plunder, loves to steal, though he fears the prison. But not so, David. He is sick of sin as sin. His loudest outcries are against the evil of this transgression and not against the painful consequences of it. When we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. When we hate what the Lord hates, 
he will soon make an end of it to our joy and peace. So in other words here, David, he wasn't feeling remorse that he got caught. He was genuinely guilt-ridden that he had committed such atrocities against the Lord. Has washed me thoroughly from iniquity. The word of God through Nathan the prophet worked like a mirror to show David how dirty and stained he was. He had lived in that condition for some time without an acute knowledge of his iniquity and sin. Now the sense of the stain drove him to beg to be cleansed. He says, wash me thoroughly. In Hebrew, multiply to wash me. By which phrase, David implies that the greatness of his guilt makes all legal ritual washings insufficient. David stood in need of God Almighty himself to wash him. He says, wash me thoroughly. The word employed is significant in that it probably means washing by kneading or beating. It's not just a simple rinsing. This is a thorough washing. David used several words to speak of his offense against God. We see transgressions. That's the idea of crossing a boundary. Iniquity has the idea of twistedness or perversion. And sin has the idea of falling short or missing the mark. Verse 3 says, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Probably several months had passed between David's sin of adultery and murder and the time when he acknowledged his guilt. We know this because Bathsheba had given birth to the child she had conceived illegitimately by the time David confessed his sin. David's sins had evidently been on his mind for many months. He had hardened his heart and refused to admit that he had, what he had done wrong was sinful. Perhaps he had tried to rationalize them somehow. Notice David didn't just acknowledge the sin he had committed here. He realized that the sin was the root cause of pain and unrest. A lot of times, we try to sugarcoat our sin. You know, someone addicted to drugs or alcohol might say that they have a disease of chemical dependency. Or, you know, they fell into a life of crime and theft because of their upbringing or their environment. You know, they just got mixed up with the wrong gang. But that's not facing the problem honestly. We all must accept responsibility for the choices that we make. It's always easier to say, I am sick than to say, I am wrong. David said, my sin. He realized his personal responsibility without trying to throw blame on his circumstances or others. He says, I acknowledge my transgressions. David realized it, it was not only one, but multiple transgressions. He did this without excuse or blame shifting or rationalization. The author is fully aware of his condition before God. He confesses, I acknowledge or I know with an emphasis on I. No longer I will. Now David is saying, I know. He knows himself intimately and sees how rebellious he has been and is before a thrice holy God. He says, my sin is always before me. In the many months between the time David committed these sins in his confession, he had not escaped the sense of sin. It was always before him. He did this, or excuse me, he did his best to ignore it and deny it. But as a genuine child of God, he could not escape it. He was in unconfessed sin. He was miserable in it, and as a, ch as a child of God should be. David didn't say, my punishment is ever before me. What did he say? My consequences are ever before me. What bothered him the most was his sin. Many grieve over the consequences of sin, but few over sin itself. They're sorry that they got caught, in other words. But we remember that David suffered this agony as a king. The riches, the power, and the glory of a kingdom can neither prevent nor remove the torment of sin, which puts the monarch and the beggar on equal standing before holy God. Then we pick it up in verse 4. 
says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David had finally come to the place where he was willing not only to call his sin what it was, but to admit that it was sin against God primarily. Obviously, he had sinned against Bathsheba, her husband Uriah, their families, the nation of Israel that he ruled, and even his own body. Yet all of that faded in the background as he considered the greatness of his sin against God. He rightly felt as if, against you, you alone have I sinned. David rightfully admitted that the worst thing he had done was offended God. He made no attempt to blame God for what had happened, but took full responsibility for himself. He acknowledged that this judge was guiltless and that he was guilty. Taking personal responsibility for our sins is an important part of true confession. To say, against thee, thee only have I sinned, may invite the quibble that adultery and murder are handled, or excuse me, are hardly private wrongings. David was getting to the heart of the matter. That's what was happening here. Sin can be against oneself and against one's neighbor, but at its core, at the root core, sin is always against God. Think back at Joseph. Long before, in Genesis, when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, in Genesis chapter 39, Joseph knew that in lying with her, it would be a sin against God. Once we understand that no sin is against ourselves or a fellow human being alone, and that all sin is transgression against God, then we will no longer treat it so lightly. He goes on to say, and done this evil in your sight. David realized that God was there and God was looking when he did this evil. He was not absent from the bedroom of adultery or the place where the command to kill Uriah was given. David felt that his sin was committed in all its filthiness while Jehovah himself looked on. Only a saved child of God cares for the eye of God. It says that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David's confession of sin was not only to relieve himself of the great burden of his sin and guilt, more so it was to bring glory to God. In confessing his sin, David hoped to confirm God's justice and holy character for proving that his commands were good and just, even when David broke those commands. And verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. The king went on to confess the depths of his sinfulness. He had been a sinner from the time he came into existence as a human being, namely at his conception. This is one of the strongest indications in the Bible that human life begins at conception rather than at birth. It's, it's an important passage that establishes the humanness of the fetus since guilt is attached to it and since only humans and angels can be guilty of sin. David viewed sinful acts as the fruit of a sinful nature not as the product of his environment or the situation that had triggered his acts. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. David wasn't born out of a sinful relationship. That's not the idea here. The purpose was to show the depths of his sin, that it, was, that it went beyond specific sinful actions all the way to the stubborn sin nature that, he, that one is born with. This verse does not mean that David felt free of personal responsibility for his actions either. He felt responsible, as is clear from the statements in the context. The sinful condition that he had inherited from his parents was the root cause, and his personal sin was the fruit. From this and similar passages, we gain the biblical idea of original sin, the idea that all humans are born sinners, receiving a sinful nature as sons and daughters of Adam. The fact of hereditary sin here is more distinctly expressed than in any other passage in the Old Testament. Because of his original sin nature, David realizes that he is not righteous. 
nor can he make a vow to rule righteously. As we saw in Psalm 101 last week, at the beginning of his kingship. No, his desire now was sincere, or excuse me, his desire then was sincere, but because of our original inherent sin nature, it is impossible for us to live up to God's holy, righteous standards. We are ever prone to sin against God. One certainty about spiritual failure in our Christian life is that regarding humanity, the playing field is level in the sense that everyone is a spiritual failure from conception. But God's redeeming grace is also equally available to all. And this is an encouraging truth to us, or it should be. We start off with some bad news, but look, we get into the good news really quick. God's redeeming grace is also equally available to all. This is a foundational truth to be reminded of, that should remind us of the moment from conception, everyone is a spiritual failure. We are spiritually dead, separated from a holy God. It's impossible for us to measure up to God or to earn our own salvation. We're told in the Word of God in Genesis chapter 1 that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, and for a time, they enjoyed sweet fellowship with God. But sadly, we get to Genesis 3, and they chose with their God-given volition, their free will choice, to sin against God and disobey his word. And as a result of that sin, there was a separation from God. And they conceived later. And who did they conceive? They conceived a child that was born sinful, just like them. And so sin had been perpetuated in the human race. We're all born sinners. We're all conceived in sin. That is why David writes in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Right from the moment of conception, when somebody is conceived as a human being in the womb, they have a sin nature. Their soul, their spirit, their body are sinful. They are spiritually dead, separated from God. Thankfully, that's not where it ends. Because the reality is that although we are all born in sin and trespass, and thus separated from God, as Romans 5.12 says, that all has sinned, and this gets passed on throughout humanity, the good news is that we don't have to stay there. We can appropriate the grace of God. That's why we see in a passage like Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared not just to the elect, but to all men. God has made his infinite grace available to all who've been conceived in sin and separated from God, born dead in trespasses and sin, so that all may be born again and have the right relationship with him. Thus, the only real failures in the sight of God, practically speaking, are not those who don't measure up to his infinite righteousness, because we know that's impossible. Nobody can. But rather, the only real failures are those who do not appropriate the grace of God that he has been made available to us, that can save our souls and redeem us and have a relationship with our holy and righteous creator God all through Jesus Christ, his son alone. That is a certainty that we need to come to grips with first and foremost. God has met that need now. We simply need to appropriate that, and we go from being failures to successes, all by the grace of God. Verse 6 goes on to say, Behold, your desire, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. David also realized that God wanted him to be completely honest, not just to offer sacrifice. He needed to get his heart right with God. His confession had to be genuine rather than superficial not just some repetition of vain words. He says, Your desire, you desire truth in the inward parts. Though the sin nature was deep within David, God wanted to work deeply in him. God wanted a transformation in David all the way to the inward parts, to the hidden part that would know wisdom. David did not cry out for a superficial reform, but something much deeper. 
Wisdom is the Old Testament, excuse me, wisdom in the Old Testament refers to living life in the light of God's presence and revelation. God wants people to be completely honest with him and to deal with reality. David acknowledged this. Verse 7, it says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Again, David pleaded for purification and cleansing. David looked for God to do a work of spiritual and moral cleaning and cleansing, and to do it in connection with the atoning sacrifice of a substitute. Hyssop was used to sprinkle purifying water. In Israel, the priest also used hyssop to sprinkle animal blood on the altar. The ritual, ritual also symbolizes ceremonial cleaning and cleansing, as it stood for purification from corruption of death, as the priest used the spongy plant for purification of Israel's rituals. Hyssop branches were also used at the Passover, you know, dipped in blood and put on the lintel and the two side posts of the door. If God would wash David morally, he would be thoroughly clean. In Levitical law, it was the priest who used the hyssop to sprinkle the purifying water. And here the psalmist petitions to the Lord to be his priest by taking the hyssop and by declaring him cleansed from all sin. Cleansing in scriptures twofold of a sinner from the guilt of sin. The blood, or the, you know, the hyssop, the aspect there of uh, dipping it in the blood purged by blood when the when he believes. And again, we know that we've been washed by the blood of Jesus the moment we believe. Uh, but it also has uh, another uh, scriptural significance that it's also significant in that it symbolizes washing from the defilement of sin. You know, that's the water aspect. And both aspects of cleaning by blood and by water are brought out. Uh, in the scripture. David didn't think for a moment that he could cleanse himself. He needed God to cleanse him and to do it thoroughly through the blood of a perfect sacrifice that was anticipated by the animal sacrifices. Remember, that was just a picture of what was to come. Purge. It is based on the word for sin in Hebrew and literally means the sin in me. David wanted to have his sin completely purged away. It says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David knew that God's cleansing was effective. His sin was a deep stain, but purity could be restored. We sense that David spoke with the voice of faith. It can be difficult for the convicted sinner to believe in such complete cleansing. It takes faith to believe God despite the doubt and difficulty. God and God alone can wash you clean of all your sin. Such is the power of the cleansing work of God upon the heart that he can declare us righteous before him, forgiving all of our sins and washing it away completely through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his bodily resurrection. Verse 8 says, Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. This verse is a request for renewed joy. Joy and gladness indicates deep joy. David's fractured relationship with God pained him as much and more than even physical pain. It says, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. David felt that the brokenness fitting for the sinner under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it was so severe, he felt as if his bones were broken. Confident that this was the work of the Holy Spirit, David could pray that it would lead to joy and gladness, that out of his brokenness, David would rejoice. It's a terrible thing to be so directly confronted with the blackness of our sin, and yet God means even this to be a prelude to joy and gladness. The restoration of joy is his goal. David is requesting a great thing. He seeks joy for a sinful heart. Music for crushed bones. This is a preposterous prayer anywhere except for the throne of God. 
He's not just crying out for mercy. He is crying out for grace. Verse 9 says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. The expression in this verse pictures God as a judge removing David's sins. The psalmist wanted God to put his sins in place where he would not see them and blot out any record of them from the record books. Repeatedly, David asked for forgiveness and restoration. In in this uh, repetition, we see that this was not a light thing for David. It was not easily expressed or even easily received by faith. Remember, as we read in the scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13, Nathan told David, hey, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. He's already given him that promise of God. And yet David was struggling to faith rest in that promise of God. There was a sense in which he had to contend both with God and with himself to bring him to the place he should be. Think of Pilgrim's progress and the heavy burden that Christian carries at the beginning of his journey. You know, and they say, well, it symbolizes sin. Well, no, really, in the Christian life, as Christian was already saved the moment he walked through the wicked gate, that that burden that he was carrying now was the shame and doubt that he felt because of his sin. His sins were already forgiven. They're forgiven at the cross. The moment we believe in Jesus Christ, they're forgiven. They're blotted out. They're washed away the moment we believe. But a lot of times it takes a while to understand the completeness of our forgiveness in Christ. We like to carry around our guilt and shame and our sin. It's not until we understand the substitutionary atonement and imputed righteousness that we have a complete assurance that our sins were totally forgiven. Again, a lot of times in Scripture, when we talk about the battlefield, it's the battlefield in the mind. We need to know these things and realize God's Word is true always and stand firm on the promises of God. Bunyan's own experience, he describes the spiritual uh, journey, really, in his autobiography, autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And he informs us that many months after his salvation, his conversion, he was tormented by deeply unsettling questions about his salvation. He doubted his salvation, again, because he was looking at himself and not looking at the Word of God. When he did look to the Word of God, and he come came to realize and understand imputed righteousness, then he understood that he was free from all of that sin, all of that shame, all of that guilt. Jesus Christ had paid it all. Going on in verse 10, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The psalmist's petition now turned to thoughts of spiritual renewal. In contrast to a natural sin nature, uh, sinful heart, David sensed the need for a clean heart. He requested a spirit more faithful to God than his natural spirit. A natural inclination was to depart from God. I mean, that's all of our natural inclinations, is it not, to depart from God? But notice David does not say, make my old heart clean. Uh, he's too experienced in the hopelessness of his old nature at this point. He would have the old man buried as a dead thing and a new creation brought in to fill its place. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. David felt that it wasn't enough for God simply to clean up his old heart. The plea he had was, create in me a clean heart. It indicated that he needed a new heart from God, a clean heart. And this really shows that David anticipated, you know, one of the great promises to the nation of Israel under the new covenant. When he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh in Ezekiel 36, 26. The word that begins this section is the Hebrew verb uh, bara, which is used in Genesis 1. For the creation of the heavens and the earth by God. Strictly used, this word describes what only God can do. Only God can create out of nothing. When the word create here, or excuse me, with the word create here, he asked God for nothing less than a miracle. 
and a term for what God alone can do. I mean, who else can create a new clean heart in me? No one but God can create a new heart. No one but God can create a new earth and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Along with the new and clean heart, David needed a steadfast spirit to continue in the way of godliness. Where David once thought that he could uphold righteousness through self-effort and strong determination, as we saw last week, now he realizes that to live a righteous life was only possible through humble reliance upon the Lord. Verse 11 says, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not cast me away from your presence. I think of Cain's punishment there, and possibly David might have that in mind, guilty of murder and cast away. David deserved death. I mean, that was under the law and the dispensation of the law. That was the penalty of murder. But thankfully, God had already given him that promise through Nathan that he would not die. This was a further way here in verse 11 that David expressed his ongoing reliance upon God. For him, the whole point of cleansing and restoration was to renew his relationship with God. David didn't want a God who cleansed him yet remained distant. He didn't want to be distant from his Savior. Being cast away from God's presence implies God's rejection of David as his servant. Saul had suffered such a fate for his continuing rebellion against Yahweh, in which we saw last week in 1 Samuel 16. Remember, this is in the dispensation of the law. God gave his Holy Spirit selectively to empower only some believers and temporarily at that, you know, primarily for special acts of his service. But since the day of Pentecost, all believers enjoy the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit within the church age. Consequently, the possibility of God withdrawing his spirit from David was a real one for him, although it's not for us. We need to keep this in mind as we study this in light of dispensational truths. However, it is possible that a Christian may lose his or her opportunities to serve the Lord, practically speaking, but positionally we are secure. For example, a Christian who gets involved in a gross sin will not lose his or her salvation, but he or she may lose the opportunity to serve God in a leadership capacity. You know, why do believers in the present dispensation of grace never need to pray as David did in Psalm 51, 11? Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That's because no believer in the present church age needs to worry about that. Christ has promised his own that the Spirit would abide with you forever. In John 14, 16, it is always proper for the Christian to pray that he may be conformed to the conditions essential to the full ministry of the Spirit, but we never have to pray for God not to take his Holy Spirit from us. Verse 12 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your, right, by your generous spirit. Again, David asked for a renewed joy. He had not lost his salvation as a result of his sin, but what he had lost was the joy in his salvation. So David was requesting a willing spirit or attitude, one that would be willing to do God's will. Such an attitude would sustain him as he sought to follow God faithfully. It says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. In his many months of unconfessed sin, David felt the misery of spiritual defeat. He wanted, once again, the joy appropriate to salvation, to those whom the Lord rescues. Uphold me by your generous spirit. This expression, again, David's confidence here is in God for his future. He did not dream of upholding himself. He knew he couldn't. No longer did David have that self-determination of upholding righteousness. He knew he couldn't. Such a self-confidence is what typically leads even good men into sin, as we see in the life of David. Psalm 51, 12, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Listen, sin can cause us to lose joy as it grieves the Holy Spirit, but sin can never 
cause us to lose salvation. Why is that? Because we have the promises of God. And I, everyone here should be familiar with this John 3.16 diagram, and as we inch closer to the fair evangelism, I know we've already started the Smiley's evangelistic uh, ministry. We need to take the time to go through this and to, to you know, understand this. You know, one of the questions that we didn't have on the questionnaire last year, but that it will be added this year was, you know, what percentage are you confident of your salvation? Well, if someone says 100%, the follow-up question that we're going to add is, if that's the case, can you ever lose your salvation? Because we realized quickly last year that many people had much confusion and doubt over eternal security. And that's why on the back of this form, we have so many verses on eternal security. And we need to take the time, especially those that are going to be participating and working in the ministry at the fair, to take the time to study this. I know as we, we get closer in August and September, uh, pastor's already talking about you know going through some lessons on you know key object, objections to Christianity and going over some you know common questions that we might hear. Uh, but in the meantime, I just encourage you in your personal Bible study, you know, that you would uh, take the time to look up those passages on eternal security, and not only for you know your own selves and the joy that you'll get out of that, knowing, you know, how free we are and that we never have to worry about losing our salvation. Uh, but even more than that, that we'll be prepared to give an answer, you know, as people have questions. And let me tell you, they do have questions and they do have doubts. Sadly, you know, some of them profess to have been in church all their lives, 20, 30, 40 years, and they still are not secured in their eternal salvation. I mean, that is, that's a sad state of affairs. and, and really. Uh, you know, as Nathan pointed the finger at David, you're the man. You know, I can see God pointing the finger at the church. You know, we've dropped the ball, you know, collectively, you know, as the church. I know we're seeking to instruct and teach here and, and fight against that. But, uh, but really, sadly, you know, over the years, the church has not adequately taught the congregants uh, that are in the pews week in and week out. I'll get off that soapbox and get back into the psalm here. <laughs> Getting back to thir verse 13 here, it says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. In the dark days before this confession of sin, David was not able to teach those who were far from God and saw none converted to him. You know, we don't know if David ever made the attempt because of his sense of guilt or if he attempted and saw no blessing on his work. One way or the other, getting right with God was the key to effectiveness in his spiritual work. Sinners shall be converted. David used the same word here translated converted that was previously translated restore. The psalmist who prayed restore to me also prays that he may be an instrument in restoring sinners to the way of the Lord, you know, that he would could be effectively used by God in that manner. Verse 14 says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And the guilt of bloodshed refers to the guilt as a result of killing someone without divine authorization. When God saved David from this guilt, and opened his lips by forgiving him, David would joyfully praise God. David was deeply aware of his sin of murder against Uriah, though he makes no specific reference to his adultery. In the psalm, he felt that he must make specific mention of this great sin. Such a request presented to the God of my salvation would surely be answered. He says, my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. David knew that with the guilt that he was carrying before God, that he would then be able to sing aloud God's praises. A great sinner pardon makes a great, sin, uh, makes a great singer. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. We believe that in the months of unconfessed sin, we're silent from a spirit of true praise. 
You know, how can you truly praise God, you know, when you're carrying around unconfessed sin? You can't. You know, that's the bottom line. Verse 16, for you do not desire a sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. David acknowledged that what God really wanted, rather than animal sacrifices, was an attitude of brokenness towards God. David expressed the principle brought forth in the previous psalm, Psalm 50. He understood that though animal sacrifice had its place, what God really desired was the heart of man. He says, or else I would give it. He would have been glad enough to present tens of thousands of innocent sacrifices if these would have met the case. Indeed, anything which the Lord prescribed, David would have cheerfully rendered. But God didn't desire any of that. God desires the heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. This is one of those statements of deep spiritual insight found in the whole of the Old Testament. This right here. What does God want as a sacrifice? He doesn't want a long list of things that you promise never to do again. He doesn't want those things that, you know, early in the kingship of David, you know, that he made a vow to God that I will, I will, I will. He's not looking for those false promises. He knows we can't. He doesn't want penance. He wants you to come with a broken and contrite heart, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's what God wants and accepts and delights in. David had a great love for the house of the Lord and had sponsored great sacrifices unto God. You know, we see several instances of that uh, throughout the scriptures. Yet he understood that one could sacrifice an animal or many animals to God without a broken and contrite heart. I mean, that's a superficial act. You could just go through the motions of that ritual. Perhaps David had offered many sacrifices at God's altar in the months of unconfessed sin. You know, he might have been offering sacrifices during, the, during that time. But he recognized the emptiness of all of that. And that the value of his present broken spirit and broken and contrite heart was really what God desired and what God took pleasure in. In David's case, there was no sin or trespass offering that he could present that God would accept. Since he had sinned with a high hand in rebellious defiance of Yahweh and in repudiation of the terms of his covenant, his sentence was death. The only reason he did not suffer this fate was that God pardoned him. The prophet Nathan brought this news of God's special pardon to David as we looked at. Is a thing that's broken good for anything? You know, can we drink out of a broken glass or can we lean upon a broken staff or cane? But though other things may be the worst for breaking, yet a heart is never at its best till it's broken. For till it's broken, we cannot see what's in it. And though God loves a whole heart in affection, yet he loves a broken heart in sacrifice. God has already given his promise to, of pardon uh, for the guilt that David had. And really, any believer, we're already pardoned of all sin. Jesus Christ paid it all. But the basis of this gracious pardon and the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, he suffered that punishment on our behalf. We all, like David, deserve to die. We deserve to be separated from God forever. Thank God that Jesus Christ paid that penalty in full. says, these, O oh God, you will not despise. It's easy to imagine that many in David's day would despise his broken and contrite heart. You know, what he did, taking whatever woman he wanted and killing anyone that got in his way. That's what the world was doing. That's what other kings were doing in their kingdoms. I mean, that was the conduct of kings all around the world and still is. Perhaps his neighboring kings were mystified as to why any of this even bothered David. To him, it didn't matter what others thought. God did not despise his broken and contrite heart, and that was enough. Verse 18 says, Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. David extended his request for personal blessing to the nation under his authority. God had promised to protect, 
protect David from death. And he now asked God to protect his people as well. As king, David's sin resulted in bad consequences for all those under his authority, as is always the case. And remember, David, again, was first mentioned as a shepherd. And we see that constant theme throughout his life. And right here we see it evidenced in his deep care for his people, the nation of Israel. He says, do good in your good pleasure to Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem. David realized that in this sin, he did not only fail as a man, he didn't only fail as a husband, as a father, he also failed as a king over God's people. And he humbly asked God to restore his favor to his kingdom. We don't know if there was an obvious demonstration of God's displeasure against the kingdom of Israel during this period of David's unconfessed sin. But whether there was or there was not, David understood that there was an aspect of restoration in terms of the kingdom that needed to be addressed as well. Verse 19, including the psalm here, says, Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. If God did good in his good pleasure to Zion and built the walls of Jerusalem, then his people could and would continue to worship him in his appointed ways. This would bring delight to God, even as he had brought delight to his people by forgiving and preserving them. When Christians sin against God, they should confess their sins. They can count on his gracious, abundant forgiveness because he has promised to forgive the fellowship consequences of sin for those who confess it. 1 John 1, 9. Forgiveness should result in a renewed commitment to worship and serve the Lord. And there are two types of forgiveness that the scripture reveals. There's judicial forgiveness that every person experiences the moment they trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. God will never condemn the believer in Christ to eternal damnation for their sins because they trust in his son who died as a substitute for their sin. However, there's also familial forgiveness. This forgiveness that believers need because they offend God, you know, as a child of God. In one sense, therefore, God's forgiven all our sins through Jesus Christ. But in another sense, we need to confess our sins and receive forgiveness when we break fellowship with God. Judicial forgiveness forgiveness makes us acceptable to God, but familial forgiveness makes us intimate with God. Judicial forgiveness removes the guilt of sin, and familial forgiveness restores the broken fellowship caused by sin. And then it ends saying, Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. Under the law, David knew that God was not yet done with animal sacrifices. They would still offer bulls on your altar, but with the heart issue addressed, the primary concern now with the heart issue addressed, those sacrifices now could be full of meaning and benefit. And I see you for sake of time. uh, Unfortunately, I'm going to have to end this a little early tonight. Uh, instead of going through the the remainder of it. But if you save your worksheets, I will uh, conclude this lesson next week. You know, we'll just carry it on into next week. I think if we go a little bit further, then I'm going to get to a point where uh, it'll be no benefit because the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. So (laughs) Uh, we'll go ahead and conclude it tonight and save the remainder of it for next week. If you would, please, let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, well, God, we thank you so much for the scripture that we looked at tonight and the truth of your word. Thank you for the promises of your word, Lord God, that we can rest faithfully on your promises, knowing that we are conceived in sin, that we are born with a sin nature, separated from you, dead in our sins and trespasses, and yet through faith alone and Christ alone, by your grace, Lord God, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we have the assurance of everlasting life with you. Jesus Christ paid our sin debt penalty in full. 
that we no longer have to fear outer darkness, or separation from you, eternal damnation, that we will spend eternity in heaven with you, rejoicing and praising and glorifying you forevermore. Well, God, what a reminder tonight as we look at the life of David in Psalm 51 here that it's a reminder to all of us, you know, as sincere as we are, as uh, earnest as we are to try to do it ourselves, Lord God, we cannot live the Christian life in and of ourselves. We are a flop and a failure before you, Lord God. But thank you that when we fail, Lord God, we have your promise in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Not only that, but cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's an amazing promise, Lord God, to restore us to intimate fellowship with you. Lord God, Lord God I pray that as we go forward, Lord God, that uh, you would just renew in our minds, Lord God, uh, just to help us to ever be mindful of your word, that it would be in the forefront of our of our minds, that it would be inscribed in our hearts, that, Lord God, we can joyfully share the good news of Jesus Christ with all those around us because we live in a lost and dying world. Thank you so much that you don't desire anything from us because you know we couldn't we couldn't bring it. We couldn't earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do. But it is all through the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.